East Texas wasn't much of a home for Cullen Baker. Few liked him, and some even tried to kill him. Yet after three hard years of wandering, he's come back to farm the land that's rightfully his. Only thing is, Cullen's in for an unwelcome homecoming. His neighbors have long memories, the Reconstructionists have greedy hearts, and his worst enemy is teamed up with a vicious outlaw. But Cullen isn't about to back down. Instead, he's intent on perfecting a new way of gunfighting, the fast draw. And now, with enemies closing in on three sides and threatening the woman that he loves, he'll have to be faster than lightning and twice as deadly just to survive. Or so reads the back of Lula Moore's novel, The First Fast Draw, a highly fictionalized account of the notorious Cullen Baker. But sometimes the truth is much, much stranger than fiction and a whole lot bloodier. Said to have killed hundreds of people, although the true number is likely far less, Cullen Baker was one of the more deadly men of the Old West. A guy who didn't blink when it came to dropping that hammer, and a man to whom killing seemed to come naturally. Who was Cullen Baker, a proud rebel who continued to defy federal authority long after the Civil War was over? A true hero of the cause, or just a homicidal maniac? Did he really invent the quick draw? And what's up with that story about him carving a life-sized effigy of his dead wife? Stick around and find out. We're going into the backwoods of Northeast Texas on this one and no, we will not be stopping at Bucky's. My name's Josh and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. Cullen Montgomery Baker was brought into this world on June 22nd, 1835 in Weekly County, Tennessee. Father John Baker would move the family first to Arkansas and then to Red River County, Texas, before finally settling there on the Sulphur River in present-day Cass County, Texas. Now, Cass County's way up there in northeast Texas, right along the western borders of Louisiana and Arkansas. A rich farmland with a very large slave population, at least at that time, the citizens of Cass County were staunchly pro-Confederate when Cullen was coming of age. So much so that they actually temporarily changed the name of the county from Cass to Jefferson Davis in honor of the Confederate president. I only mention this because the Civil War, the events leading up to it and its direct aftermath, would be the defining event in Cullen Baker's life. I mean, that's part of the mystique surrounding the man, right? That he was an unreconstructed rebel, a true believer in the Southern cause, helping to protect his homeland from a tyrannical occupying military. That said, the Civil War wouldn't begin until Baker was in his mid to late 20s. And as it turns out, he was prone to violence well before he swore allegiance to the Stars and Bars. The sandy-haired, blue-eyed Cullen seemed to be trouble-prone from a very early age. Once the victim of bullying himself, a teenage Baker snapped and struck out against his tormentor, beating the older kid to within an inch of his life. According to legend, he probably would have killed him had others not intervened. After this, young Cullen seemed to always be on the prod. He had a hair-trigger temper and was ready to throw down at a moment's notice. Couple that with a strong taste for hard liquor, a taste acquired at a very young age, and the citizens of Cass County soon had a problem child on their hands. It does appear, however, that Baker was humbled a bit at the age of 18. Humbled and likely forever altered. By this point in time, it would have been around 1853, Baker, despite still being wet behind the ears, could be found on any given day drinking his fill at various local watering holes. And it was in one such establishment that he finally bit off a little more than he could chew. Evidently, another patron had quite enough of this young brash pup and decided to teach him a lesson, striking Cullen over the head with a tomahawk. Now, this wasn't no love tap. 
Matter of fact, it almost put Baker under, and he was out of commission for a while. Story goes that this blow to the skull even caused him to stick to the straight and narrow for at least a little bit. Not sure how much that had to do with him being reformed as opposed to not being able to stop seeing double. Either way, he did calm down long enough to get married in January of 1854, still wearing bandages around his head at the ceremony as he and young Mary Jane Petty swapped vows. And you know how the rhyme goes. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes, that's right, murder. A few months after Cullen and his bride tied the knot, he went and killed his first man. Remember, we're still talking 1854 at this point, several years prior to the war between the states. Seems that Baker, now a bully himself, took to harassing a young orphan, a child by some accounts. And when that wasn't enough to satisfy his cruelty, he took up a bullwhip and began striking the youngster. A good, honest bystander by the name of Wesley Bailey witnessed this assault and encouraged the young victim to go to authorities, which he did, pressing charges. Cullen was arrested and forced to stand trial, but I was not able to determine what his punishment was. Likely just a slap on the wrist, if anything at all. And strangely enough, Cullen lashed out not at the orphan who told on him, but at Wesley Bailey, the man who encouraged the kid to seek justice in the first place. In Baker's warped mind, I guess he figured the man was sticking his nose where it didn't belong. And it wasn't too much longer before Cullen paid a visit to the Bailey farm, double-barreled shotgun in hand. Upon seeing a drunken and heavily armed Cullen Baker, who already had a bad reputation as a bit of a hothead, Wesley Bailey quickly jumped behind a post of some sort to shield himself. The irritated Baker then told Wesley that he didn't intend to kill him, just wanted to wound him a little bit. Come on, what do you think I am, some sort of psychopath? I just want to shoot you in the legs and see you jump. But if you keep hiding like that, I'm going to get mad and shoot you in the dang head. Now I am paraphrasing, but not by much. That's actually the gist of what happened. Seriously. All Cullen claimed he wanted to do was wound the frightened Bailey in the legs and watch him quote-unquote jump. And Wesley, probably scared out of his wits, fell for it. He exposed himself, and sure enough, Cullen let him have both barrels of that scattergun, literally shredding Bailey from his knees all the way up to his midsection. Miraculously, the wounded man didn't immediately die. He hung on for three or four days, naming his killer, before he finally gave up the ghost. Not that Cullen was trying to deny anything. He let it be known that, yeah, I shot Wesley Bailey. I didn't mean to kill him. I was just fooling around, having fun. Fooling around or not, nuttier than a squirrel turd or not, Baker wasn't just going to wait around on no hangman's noose. He took his wife and headed some 200 miles northeast to his uncle's place in Perry County, Arkansas. Now, this murder, I couldn't find an exact date as to when it occurred, other than about eight or nine months after Baker was married. So figure August or September of 1854. And in the spirit of transparency, I will say it was not easy finding a lot of exact dates or particulars surrounding the entire life of Cullen Baker. This is one of those episodes where the timeline might get a little bit skewed. I did have a hard time connecting all the dots, but I'm hoping I'm not too far off point. If you're an expert on all things Cullen Baker and I get anything wrong, by all means, please contact me. Josh at WildWestExtra.com as to what Cullen did to occupy his time in Arkansas, your guess is as good as mine. He and Mary Jane would have a daughter in May of 1857, and I believe I found them on the 1860 census, still there in Perry County with uh, Baker's occupation listed as farmer. And evidently, Cullen didn't leave his anger issues nor his penchant for hard drinking back there in Texas. A lady in Arkansas decided to speak her mind about Cullen's antics one day, and he paid her a visit with a bundle of hickory sticks 
need to give her a nice little ass one because that's what you do when women say things you don't like, right? Naughty girls get the switch, don't they? Who's the naughty girl? Who's the naughty girl? All right, sorry. Uh, as you can imagine, the woman's husband, David Wortham, didn't take too kindly to this. He and Baker started tussling right there in front of the house with Wortham quickly getting the upper hand. His wife at one point began to scream, distracting David just long enough for Cullen to pull out a blade and sink it into the man. He soon bled out, and once again, Cullen Baker became wanted for murder. Unfortunately, Cullen's wife Jane passed away in June of 1860, and Baker would take his then three-year-old daughter back to Texas where he'd leave her with the in-laws, or former in-laws. Not sure how much contact father and daughter had after this, but according to more than one source, he never saw the girl again. That killing I just described a moment ago, the stabbing death of David Wortham, I was not able to determine whether or not it occurred before or after Mary Jane passed away. It's entirely possible that being a married man was the only thing keeping Cullen somewhat restrained, and upon his wife's death, he just went even further mad. Without giving too much away, you will see this happen again later on with Baker's second marriage. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Right now, we're still pre-Civil War, but not for long. The escalating tension between the North and the South had finally come to a head. In February of 1861, Texas seceded from the United States and joined the Confederacy. And you better believe Colin Baker wasn't going to sit this fight out. He enlisted with Company G of Morgan's Regimental Cavalry out of Cass County in November of 1861. Guess the Army wasn't too big on checking to see if prospective recruits were wanted for murder back in them days. Now, it appears that Morgan's cavalry was primarily operating in the Trans-Mississippi region as part of Parsons' brigade. And during Baker's time, I don't think they saw much action other than marching the hell all over Arkansas. I actually have a book on another lesser-known Confederate unit, the 28th Texas Cavalry, and they were much the same, at least early on during the war. Texas to Arkansas, a lot of waiting around camp and marching, and then more waiting. Boredom and sickness seemed to be their main adversary at least in the beginning stages of the war. Cullen would take a brief leave of absence in July of 1862 to get married a second time to a gal from Lafayette County, Arkansas, named Martha Foster, but he soon returned to his unit. He could be found on roll as late as October, but in January of 1863, he took another leave, this one permanent and unsanctioned as he would be listed officially as a deserter. Not real sure on the motivation here. Like I touched on a minute ago, I don't believe Morgan's cavalry was seeing much fighting during this time, if any. So I don't believe it was a fear of battle that caused Cullen to go AWOL. If anything, I think it might have been the regimented discipline coupled with the unmitigated boredom of regular military life that he didn't care for. Also, there are scant references to him being assigned as an overseer to a slave work detail during this time and him killing one or two of the black men before deserting. So I suppose fleeing military justice could have been another possible motivation as well, but I just have no proof whatsoever to back that up. My apologies. I feel like that's getting to be the case more and more with some of these episodes. There's just so much mythology built up around some of these guys, and the resources we have are a bit lopsided. In Cullen's case, one of the men he tried to murder on more than one occasion ended up writing his biography. Reckon a few details might have been embellished on that one. And we will talk more about that later. Once again, what happens next is a bit murky. Some sources claim that Cullen returned to his wife in Lafayette County to take up farming before finally being overcome by the wanderlust. Others claim he joined up again with the Confederates, this time with the 15th Texas Cavalry, but only served for a brief period before being mustered out due to some sort of uh, disability. 
Following this discharge and sometime in early 1864, Cullen was said to have been captured by a so-called lawless group of bandits who, upon seeing that he was of no threat to them, recruited the wayward man into their ranks. At least that's the way the story goes. Here's what we do know. By 1864, Colin Baker was serving the Confederate cause once again, but I do use the term serving very loosely. He was riding with a group there in southern Arkansas called the Independent Rangers, who were somewhat associated with the Confederate Home Guard. Now, the Home Guard is an organization I've personally never read anything good about. Well, I'm sure there were some decent and kind men among them, I'm just not aware of it. Originally designed to replace the various state militias, now fighting with the regular Confederate army, the Guard's purpose was to defend the home front. They also spent a fair amount of time hunting down Confederate deserters and draft dodgers. The first thing that comes to mind to me, uh, if you've ever seen the movie Cold Mountain, the bad guys, the ones that are terrorizing Nicole Kidman and her neighbors before Jude Law shows up, that's the Confederate Home Guard. Now, I know that was just a movie, but history does show that such outfits often resorted to a similar type of lawlessness. With the majority of able-bodied men stationed elsewhere, the Home Guard was free to do basically as they pleased. And sometimes what they pleased was robbing, raping, and killing. If someone had property that these groups like the Independent Rangers wanted, they'd simply declare the family as Union sympathizers and take it. If there was a man around to cause trouble, guess what? Now he's a Union man or a deserter, and well, we execute them around these parts. Don't get it twisted, you had scoundrels on both sides. One such group in Arkansas, the Mountain Boomers, were Union-associated guerrillas committing mostly the same sort of atrocities as Cullen Baker and the Independent Rangers. Naturally, the two entities clashed, but mostly they went after much softer targets. Like a group of civilians attempted to flee the hell of war-torn Arkansas in November of 1864, who had the misfortune to encounter Cullen Baker, who, by this point, was leading the Independent Rangers. The civilians, mostly women, children, and older folks, were attempted to cross the Saline River in the Ochita Mountains when the Rangers intercepted them. Baker considered them leaving Arkansas to be a cowardly and unpatriotic act, or at least that was his excuse, and he ordered these prodigal travelers to turn around and head back across the river. When they refused, he drew his revolver and shot and killed their leader. He then told the rest that if they'd cross back over, he'd let them go. They did as they were told, and Cullen and his men promptly butchered nine more, most of which were elderly men. And of course, they then made off with any valuables at hand, which I'm sure was their main motivation to begin with. This blatant act of violence, known as the Saline Massacre, did finally cause some of the locals to somewhat rise up and make plans to get rid of these transgressors. But the so-called rangers skedaddled as soon as they got word. Guess fighting other armed men didn't much appeal to them. Unless they were black. And especially if they were black and had the absolute gall to don the uniform of a United States soldier. Oh boy, that really got them worked up. Cullen actually encountered one such group on the Red River town of Spanish Bluffs, Arkansas, toward the end of 1864, either shortly before or shortly after the Saline Massacre. Baker was drinking in a saloon, as was his habit, proudly wearing a gray Confederate cap, when some black soldiers showed up asking for his ID, which he gave them in the form of a loaded six-shooter. When the smoke cleared, a sergeant and two or three of his companions lay dead on the ground. Another story about Cullen that makes the rounds states that he murdered a black lady around the same time simply because he didn't like the way she looked. Supposedly, he came upon a group of wagons, noticed the lady, and began verbally harassing her before he finally just shot her dead. Is that true? I have no idea. 
sounds a bit apocryphal to me. Almost like the story about John Wesley Harden killing a man because he was snoring too loudly. Then again, when it comes to both of these guys, these stories sound like something they would do. Whether or not the events actually happened, I'll let you decide. Remember, when it comes to Cullen Baker, there are some that claim he killed hundreds of people. Others say around 50 or 60 is a more reliable number. I personally think that's still a bit too high. That said, Baker was a deadly man who had very little regard for human life, and in the areas we're talking about on this episode, there was a lot of indiscriminate murdering of innocent people. So it could have happened. But hell, my grandma could have been a coal miner if she had balls. Could have don't count for much when you're talking about history. All right, so these independent rangers kind of disbanded towards the end of the war, especially after losing local support after that massacre and the ever-increasing presence of Union troops. It's said that Cullen settled down for a bit, joining up with his wife Martha and operating a line ferry on the Sulphur River there in southern Arkansas, but sadly, she would not have long to live. Baker became a widower once again when Martha passed away on March 1st, 1866, causing him to lose what marbles he had left. Turns out Baker wasn't too bad when it came to the art of whittling, and he was even known to carve out little detailed animals, squirrels, rabbits, and such. And when Martha died, he whittled or carved a life-sized effigy of the woman, like some big morbid wooden scarecrow, dressed the thing up in Martha's clothing and kept it inside their home, even adorning it with her jewelry. Yikes. And one day, or so the legend goes, Cullen came home only to find his property had been vandalized by federal soldiers. The jewelry missing and a picture of his dearly departed used as target practice. Now that's enough to cause even the mildest of us to lose our cool, right? Not to mention someone as loony as Cullen Baker. You know he went on the prowl and he did quickly find 18 soldier boys camped nearby and he, along with a friend, killed almost all of them. Once again, is this true? I highly doubt it. I feel like there would be some sort of official record when it comes to the murder of over a dozen federal troops in one sitting especially in peacetime. With that said, did Union soldiers ever show up at the Baker cabin and ransack it while Cullen wasn't home? Possibly. I mean, he was a wanted man, and following his wife's death, his reputation as a killer only continued to grow. Now, by this time, Reconstruction was in full swing, both in Arkansas and the Lone Star State. Just a real quick refresher on Reconstruction. This was a brief period following the Civil War where the United States was pretty much trying to rebuild itself. The main goal was to bring the southern states back into full political participation in the Union, as well as guaranteeing the rights of the former slaves. In the eyes of many Texans, however, this was akin to a foreign military occupation. Not only had they lost the war, but now their enemy was camped right there on their doorsteps, trying to tell them how to live. The fear was that the northern carpetbaggers and corrupt Union officials would rule by brute military force and take whatever they wanted and leave all the good, honest citizens to ruin. It didn't help none that many places like Cass County, where Cullen grew up, or Lafayette County, Arkansas, his most recent home turf, were hit pretty hard economically before Reconstruction even began. According to the Texas State Historical Association, in 1859, Cass County, Texas slaveholders had paid taxes on 4,700 slaves valued at over $2 million. This represented 60% of all taxable property in the county. The loss brought about by emancipation, together with the widespread belief that free blacks would not work and the uncertain status of the South and the nation, led to a loss of confidence that caused property values to further plummet in 1865. This is where the belief that Cullen Baker was a hero starts to come into play. 
The idea that Union officials seized his land as well as the property of others, thus turning him into an outlaw and forcing his hand to continue the war against Northern aggression. A war that, if we're completely honest, he never really participated in in the first place. Unless you count chasing deserters and killing innocent civilians. Truth is, there's no real evidence of Union troops abusing their powers, at least not in Cullen's neck of the woods. By the war's end, you had Union troops stationed in previous Confederate strongholds like Lafayette County, Arkansas, or Bowie County, Texas. You also had Bluecoat stationed in nearby Marion and Harrison counties and a Freedmen's Bureau in Marshall, Texas, about 40 miles to the south. As far as Cass County goes, Union troops were never stationed there at any time. Once again, per the Texas State Historical Association, U.S. military commanders removed Cass County office holders as impediments to Reconstruction. Reconstruction, however, was of a short duration in the county, and the county was soon returned to white Democratic control as early as 1869. So other than that, and having some Union troops occasionally passing through while traveling or pursuing fugitives, the county remained untouched. Unlike other Texas counties, the citizens of Cass County, for the most part, did not experience the military occupation by a conquering army. Furthermore, the total number of U.S. troops stationed in the entire state of Texas was quickly reduced from 50,000 down to just 3,000, with most of them stationed on the frontier. I'll be 100% transparent here. I'm no great expert on Reconstruction. It does appear to me, however, just from what little I've read, that in the parts of the South we're talking about today, on this episode, Northeast Texas and Southwest Arkansas, the largest impact was economic. And that economic impact was mostly brought on by the loss of property, human property, slaves. This was not, once again, at least not that I could find, a situation where the federal army showed up and started seizing homesteads or looting and burning and taking stuff that didn't belong to them. By far, the vast majority of innocent civilians in this area being targeted at this time, the ones who took the brunt of all the violence, were the recently freed slaves. I actually found a letter sent by the Freedmen Bureau out of Marshall, Texas, detailing just one month's worth of violence. Every single day, one or multiple free slaves were simply gunned down, murdered. And oftentimes, the local authorities refused to even arrest or prosecute the killers. Freedmen Bureau Inspector Colonel William H. Sinclair, upon inspecting Northeast Texas, said freed people and white unionists were living in, quote, pandemonium itself and that the conditions were deplorable. Blacks continued to work under conditions he said were worse than slavery, and he witnessed firsthand outlaws under indictment or wanted, guys like Baker, who just rode in and out of towns as they pleased. Big shout out, by the way, to Michael over at Texas History Lessons. I picked his brain a bit on Reconstruction here in Texas, and he sent me a wealth of information that I have yet to read all of. It's going to take me a while to do that. Speaking of Texas History Lessons, if you haven't done so and are hankering for some more Wild West content, Check out his most recent episodes on the Second Battle of Adobe Walls. I know I touched on that briefly way back when I did my Quanta Parker episode, but Michael really hit it out of the park on this one. And his source material is straight from the point of view of the great Billy Dixon. Link in the show notes. All right. So given everything I just said about Reconstruction, why did Cullen Baker continue to fight? What was the great insult heaped upon him that gave him no other recourse but to resort to violent retribution against the evil United States military? I got no fucking clue. And I say he continued to fight, but what he really did was continue to kill. His hatred for the Union Army and everything they represented remained intact. Make no mistake, that was genuine. 
But he wasn't exactly out there waging no one-man war of resistance, nor was he simply trying to live a quiet, peaceful life. He would surround himself with like-minded cutthroats, kind of like in his independent ranger days, and begin committing various crimes, working out of the river bottoms there in southern Arkansas and northeast Texas. And just a quick aside, I know I keep saying southern Arkansas and northeast Texas. Unless you're familiar with the areas I'm talking about or you're staring at a map, it may sound like Baker is making all these long journeys all the way from Texas to Arkansas and back. That is not the case at all. Bloomberg, Texas, where Baker often frequented, was only five miles away from another one of his favorite haunts, Bright Star, Arkansas. Just wanted to point that out. He was literally right there on the border. Also, I think it's worth mentioning that this is not your classic Old West terrain. We're not talking about the high desert or wide open rolling prairies or even snow-capped mountains. That little corner of northeast Texas is heavily wooded, covered in thickets and swamps and river bottoms and mosquitoes. Plenty of places in there to disappear or have someone disappeared. Its people can be clannish and prone to feuds, even nowadays, but that's just East Texas in general. A good portion of the border along the Sabine River was often referred to in those days and earlier as no man's land. And another area that Cullen would sometimes frequent to the west was sometimes called the Devil's Triangle. Imagine a line drawn from Grayson County in North Texas down to Navarro County and then east to Cass County and then back west to Grayson. That'll give you a rough triangle of about 13,000 square miles, where in addition to Cullen Baker, you had more outlaw gangs led by other ex-Confederates, men like Benjamin Bickerstaff and Bob Lee. To quote James Smallwood, Kenneth Howell, and Carol Taylor in the aptly named book The Devil's Triangle, quote, During the war, those men, Cullen Baker, Bickerstaff, and Lee, lived with violence and destruction, and they brought that violence and destruction to Northeast Texas when they returned home. They refused to accept the judgment of war. They caused death and chaos wherever they went. While their major interest was plunder, such men wrapped themselves in the Confederate flag, voiced support for the lost cause, and gained much support from former Confederates. End quote. Now, I think that about sums it up. You know, all three men were ex-rebels. They all knew each other. All three rode together on occasion. And yes, all three were stone-cold killers more interested in plunder than anything else despite what the popular narrative might be. I did a little reading on both Bickerstaff and Lee, as they really piqued my curiosity. These are the type of guys that I would have never known about had I not started this podcast. It's cool because I love learning about more obscure characters, but it is a bit of a curse because I'm easily distracted. So I'm exercising my self-control by not going down a Bickerstaff and Lee rabbit hole right now. Just know that they were fellow bandit leaders, all with stories similar to Cullen's. They were tolerated for a bit and even praised by locals as long as they talked up the Confederate cause and didn't get too crazy stealing from certain families. Ah, but all good things come to an end. Let's just say their lifestyle didn't exactly lend itself to making it to an old age. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go back to the man of the hour, Mr. Cohen Montgomery Baker. In March of 1866, he got into a fight with some Union soldiers in the town of Boston, Texas. And just like his previous fight with those black soldiers, Cullen was quick to draw his revolver, killing a sergeant by the name of Albert Titus and catching a bullet to his own arm in the process. This really got the Army's attention and they put a bounty on Baker's head, dead or alive. The wily Confederate proved to be a slippery eel, however, and quickly disappeared in those river bottoms of swamps and nobody, especially not no damn Yankees, could sneak up on him. Not that he didn't stick his head out now and then and cause some trouble. Like the time in June of 1867 when Cullen decided to go shopping. 
Yes, believe it or not, even the most bloodthirsty of outlaws need to get groceries on occasion. Man cannot live on hate alone. As it were, Cullen stopped in at Rowden's general store there in Cass County, but Mrs. Rowden was the only person manning the ship on that particular day. I guess Baker either wasn't in the paying mood or he didn't believe in giving cold hard cash to females because he simply gathered up what supplies he wanted and walked on out. Or maybe he figured the Rowdens were good southern patriots who'd be more than happy to support a gentleman like himself. I don't know. Once the proprietor, John Rowden, found out what had happened, he came calling and told Baker to his face that he aimed to collect on these goods. It should be noted that Mr. Rowden didn't go out to meet Cullen with nothing but high hopes and well wishes. He went hilled, scattergun in hand. Now, I don't know how the conversation went exactly. I don't know whether or not John was asking all nice-like or if he employed a little bit of thunder to his voice. But Baker did agree to come into town soon with the money. And to his credit, he did return to the general store a few days later on June 5th. Only instead of money, he carried a shotgun of his own and a belly full of whiskey. He called Rowden out, and once the man appeared, he ended his life with a double-barrel blast to the chest. By late August of that same year, Baker was arrested but quickly escaped, likely with the help of locals or possibly even the arresting officials themselves. I was unable to find more details on that. And two months following this, he let the Yankees know he was still alive and kicking by robbing one of their supply wagons outside of Jefferson, Texas. If you heard the episode I did on Texas gunman Bill Longley, link in the show notes, he was said to have been a part of that particular action. This is one of those Robin Hood type situations where Baker attempted, probably successfully, to garner some goodwill among his neighbors. The supplies in the wagon, you know, bacon, flour, stuff like that, were spread out among locals and once distributed, Cullen simply set the empty wagon on fire. If anything, the seizing of these supplies was just a big middle finger to the Union authorities. Now, I don't know about you, but it can get lonely doing nothing but stealing and killing. Remember, Baker was only human, and it wasn't long before he got himself a hankering for some female companionship of the permanent sort. Decided he'd get hitched again, and who better to marry than Belle Foster, the 16-year-old sister of his dead wife, Martha. As you can imagine, neither Belle nor her parents, Billy and Elizabeth Foster, were very keen on the idea. Not sure if it was the fact that Cullen was a wanted killer, or almost twice her age, or, oh, I don't know, had a life-size wooden carving of her dead sister. But Belle noped the hell out of that courtship real quick. Gotta think that wooden effigy probably wouldn't have gone over too well on their wedding night. You know, kind of hard to consummate a relationship with the dead beady eyes of a huge doll dressed in your sibling's clothing staring daggers at you. Unless you're into that sort of thing. No judgment. No, uh, instead, Bell chose to marry a local school teacher named Thomas Orr. Now, Thomas was a little bit closer to Bell's age. He was only 23 compared to her 17 years when the two finally tied the knot in September of 1867. And to be fair, Cullen Baker actually took this rejection with a surprising amount of maturity. Not only did he offer to pay for the wedding, but he also had a small home constructed for the newlyweds as well as a new schoolhouse there in Bright Star, Arkansas, where young Thomas worked. And of course, that's not true at all. No, fucking crazy. Baker began relentlessly harassing Thomas, showing up at the schoolhouse and berating the man and cursing him in front of his students, laughing at him, trying to bully him into a fight. He even went so far as to hit Orr over the side of the head with a damn branch. And that was just the beginning. Things are about to ramp up real quick between Mr. Orr and Baker. But not before Cullen decided to join an angry mob, hell-bent on instructing a fellow white man not to be so damn nice to the freed slaves. It seems Baker was drinking at a Bright Star saloon, 
This was in December of 1867 when a bunch of locals were getting butt hurt over a farmer named Hal Smith. It seems Smith had the audacity to actually hire some free slaves. The angry mob's numbers grew, as did the amount of liquor they poured down their gullets, until finally they had enough courage to pay Hal Smith a visit. Cullen Baker right there with them. Only thing was, this Hal Smith guy wasn't about to take no mob justice laying down. Not to say that things didn't get sideways. The vigilantes ended up stabbing Smith's daughter during the attack on his farm, as well as killing a black man, who I assume was one of Hal's new employees. Smith put up one hell of a fight, though, and wounded several members of the mob, including Baker, who took a slug to the leg. After this, Cullen kind of sort of went on a little bit of a killing spree. First on the list was a man named William G. Kirkman, who made the mistake of becoming an agent for the Freedmen's Bureau in Boston, Texas. He's the guy who wrote that letter I mentioned earlier detailing the crimes committed there against some of the freed slaves. So from what I can gather, the purpose of the Freedmen's Bureau was to assist formerly enslaved people to obtain land, jobs, fair treatment, education, as well as help settle disputes and complaints, assist in legalizing marriages entered into during slavery, and providing transportation to refugees and freed people who were attempting to reunite with their family or just relocate to other parts of the country, blah, 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 blah. You know, all that Yankee basic human rights shit. How dare they, you know? You mean to tell me that the damn carpetbaggers just decided to come waltzing down to Texas with these big ideas of freedom and equal rights? Cullen Baker and his people were just supposed to be like, oh, okay. I don't think so, buddy. Long story short, Cullen came riding into town and just flat out gunned Kirkman down. The bureau official was said to have gotten off one shot before he was riddled by 16 separate shotgun and pistol balls. Two days later, Baker murdered a couple of freedmen. No details nor motive known other than the obvious. And next on the kill list was a guy named John Salmons. Uh, the gang Baker was running with, he was basically co-leading it with another bad man named Lee Rames. Rames had a brother named Seth, also an outlaw who went and got himself killed by the aforementioned John Salmons guy. Needless to say, Cullen and the boys snuffed out his lights as soon as they found him. Then they went after another guy named George Barron, who at some point had helped a posse search for Baker. One after another after another, the bodies began piling up. Back in Arkansas, Cullen was recognized by Union authorities when boarding a ferry. At first, he tried using an alias, but when that didn't work, he simply jerked iron and began firing. One sergeant was killed, with a private being able to get away and alert authorities. In October of 1868, even more soldiers would be killed there in Arkansas. A Major P.J. Andrews and a Lieutenant H.F. Willis, along with an unnamed black civilian. Remember, this is over three years after the war officially ended. I can find no additional details to these killings, but evidently Sheriff Standell of Little Rock, Arkansas was also wounded. So I assume they were attempting to arrest Cullen. A couple months later, Baker killed a black dude named Sheffield, who had been bragging that he would lead people to Cullen for the right amount of money. When Cullen caught up to the man outside of Queen City, Texas, just 20 or so miles south of Texarkana, he filled him full of so much lead that Sheffield was said to have been, quote, shot to jelly. Then, as a bit of entertainment, Baker would gallop his horse and jump over the dead man's body, using his head for target practice. Fun times. As you can imagine, with somebody as volatile as Baker, most people, even his own gang members, were scared shitless of the man. This was not the case for co-leader Lee Rames, however. The two men got crossways over something. Some sources claim it was Baker's increasing recklessness. And Lee called Cullen out, challenged him to a fight. And for the first time that I'm aware of, Cullen Baker back down. 
Guess he did have at least a little fear of death in him after all, even if it meant losing face. Following this altercation, the rest of the boys stayed with Lee Rames, save for one, the ever-loyal Matthew Dummy Kirby. He alone would continue to ride with Cullen and pay dearly for it. And yes, you heard me correctly, the man's nickname was Dummy. At first I thought he was some sort of a deaf mute, but it turns out he was just an asshole who was really good at imitating and making fun of deaf mutes. Really wish I knew more about that Lee Rames guy, though. Uh, I have no idea what became of him, what his real story was. So if you do know any information, please shoot me an email at josh at wildwestextra.com. Remember Thomas Orr, that young school teacher who wed Belle Foster, Cullen's wife's sister? Well, Baker had forgot that great insult, and he figured it was time to make things right. Cullen paid Thomas a visit in the dead of night, kicking in his door and tying the man up along with his former father-in-law, William Billy Foster. Next morning, he released Foster but put a noose around Orr's neck and lynched the man. Only thing was, the school teacher survived. Guess Cullen had a little bit too much whiskey the night before and didn't do a thorough job, or maybe he was just in a hurry. Upon realizing his mistake, Baker returned to the area again a few weeks later on January 5th, 1869. He showed up at his daddy-in-law's house again with dummy Kirby and claimed to simply be in the area to tie up a few financial loose ends. Just so happened Thomas Orr peeped Baker through a window and quickly snuck out the back to go fetch help. In the meantime, Cullen and Kirby helped themselves to some of Foster's whiskey along with what vittles he had lying around. And by the next morning, both men were dead, their bodies perforated with bullets. How they got that way is up for debate as there are three different versions of what had happened. What else is new, right? One story goes that Cullen and Dummy got themselves good and drunk and laid down to take a nap. Thomas Orr arrived with a couple other guys and the three just unloaded their weapons into the sleeping outlaws. The end. Another version has William Foster taking part in the killing by lacing all that whiskey and food Baker was consuming with strychnine. And it was the poison that actually did the job. Then, just to be thorough, Orr and his buddies, along with Foster, pumped both men's bodies full of lead. And then you have version number three. Orr returned with several armed neighbors who were tired of Cohen's bullshit. According to one Texas paper at this time, quote, They were determined to kill him, Baker, or sacrifice their lives in the attempt. End quote. This version is kind of backed up by a potential witness, a black dude who went by the name of Doc Quinn. In the book Slave Narratives, A Folk History of Slavery in the United States, Volume 6, Doc states that he was about 50 yards away from the Foster house when Thomas Orr and his friends rode up. Colin and Dummy were standing outside near the chimney and were caught completely by surprise and gunned down before they even knew what was happening. I will say I have read some of the other stuff Doc Quinn said about Baker, and it's a bit dubious. Just reading his account of Cullen's death and his description of Cullen, the man sounds a little bit like Stephen from Django Unchained. Whatever actually happened, I think a lot of people in that neck of the woods had one long collective sigh. At 34 years of age, the bad man was gone. Cullen Baker would murder no more. His body and the body of Kirby were both taken to nearby Bloomberg and dragged through the streets before making the 40-mile trip south to Jefferson where they were put on public display. And it's there in Jefferson in the Oakwood Cemetery where you can still visit the grave of Colin Baker. And oddly enough, if you happen to be in the area during the first week of November, you can join in at the festivities at the 46th annual Colin Baker Fair up in Bloomberg. Thomas Orr, that meek school teacher who finally did Baker in, probably, we live another 35 years, dying in the year 1904 at the age of 60, one year after his wife Belle passed away. 
Orr was the one who actually wrote that book on Colin titled The Life of the Notorious Desperado Colin Baker that you can still find on Amazon. Uh, this is one of those be very wary of the source kind of situation. I mean, how fair or unbiased could you expect the man to be after getting tormented and strung up by Cullen? According to Orr's book, Baker recruited the guy I mentioned a moment ago, Doc Quinn, to help lure other black people to their death under the guise of forming an all-black militia. Using this trick, Baker is said to have killed 53 freedmen at Holman, Arkansas, 86 at Rocky Comfort, Arkansas, 6 at Ogden, 62 near Jefferson, Texas, 100 in northern Louisiana, and 73 outside of Marshall, Texas. Not sure if you were keeping score at home, but that's nearly 400 people. An outrageously inflated number that I don't think even gets close to being accurate. Do I believe Cullen likely murdered some freedmen in such a fashion, luring them to their deaths? Sure, just not no 400. I don't buy that he killed hundreds of men, period, black or white. He certainly killed his fair share. That's not up for debate, and I wouldn't be surprised if it was more than a couple of dozen. That's killings directly by his hand or the hands of men that he led. But hundreds? There's just very few people in history who ever racked up that kind of body count, even in wartime. When it comes to Colin Baker, he's one of those you either love him or you hate him kind of guys. On one side, you got people that believe he was a Confederate hero, a man defending the honor of the South after being occupied by an invading army looking to strip Texans of their rights. On the other hand, you have those who think he was nothing more than the living embodiment of the KKK, a snarling monster who roamed East Texas looking for black people to devour. Likely, the truth is somewhere in the middle. The Civil War was pure hell, and it changed everyone who participated, and their families. I have a very hard time believing anyone came home from that conflict the same as when they left. And for some, the war was simply just an excuse to exercise their bloodlust. I think this is probably the case with Cullen Baker. We know he was a killer before the war, and although his various murders are hard to track, he didn't really participate in any actual battles that I'm aware of. He and his independent rangers went after soft targets, the weak, the old, or they killed from ambush. And I can't fault them there, I suppose. And you can't forget that knock on the head that Cullen took when he was still a teenager. An injury like that will have lifelong repercussions. We now know, thanks to science, that head trauma can cause permanent behavioral and emotional issues, up to and including the frontal lobe's capacity to govern impulsivity or self-control. I think it's safe to say that Colin Baker was a bad man. He was impulsive, dangerous, and a killer. As I've alluded to, there are several sources that claim Baker killed the majority of his victims from ambush, that he only engaged in violence when he had the upper hand. While I don't doubt he was prone to such precautions, we also do know there were at least a few times he simply threw caution to the wind and got jiggy with it, like the times he killed those soldiers. Baker, in my opinion, is one of the scarier guys I've ever covered on this podcast, and not necessarily due to his body count. It's the insanity and just a total sense of unpredictability. Other than that time he backed down from his fellow outlaw Lee Rames, there's no indication that Baker was ever really afraid of anything. And a man who doesn't know fear is a nerve-wracking son of a bitch. You just never know what they're going to do. As for Baker being the first fast draw, I don't think there's any basis for that other than the title of Louis L'Amour's novel. And I'm not knocking Louis L'Amour. I love his stuff. But he was a fiction author. And the first fast draw is a fiction novel that just so happens to use the names of some real people. The real question is whether or not Baker was deadly because he was so quick with a gun 
you know, the actual physical motion of pulling a revolver, thumbing back the hammer and squeezing the trigger? Or was he deadly because he was quick to go for his gun? That he wouldn't hesitate to resort to a very final form of violence. Remember what Gene Hackman said in the movie Unforgiven? Being quick with a pistol, that don't do no harm, but it don't mean much next to being cool-headed. A man who will keep his head, not get rattled under fire, likely as not, he'll kill you. And then that dime novelist asks, but if the other feller is quicker and he fires first, Hackman cuts him off, then he'll be hurrying and he'll miss. Man, I love that movie. And not to keep harping on movies, but then you got John Wayne in The Shootist. It isn't always being fast or even accurate that counts. It's being willing. I found out early that most men, regardless of cause or need, aren't willing. They blink an eye or draw a breath before they pull a trigger. I won't. And I think that's what it came down to with Colin Baker. He didn't blink an eye nor draw a breath. When he saw a threat, he simply started killing, and I think the people who he engaged with weren't ready for such a swift, violent response. It's worth mentioning that a few months before his death, on August 27th, 1868, Major General J.J. Reynolds, the guy in charge of the military districts for the state of Texas, issued Special Order Number 16, in which he offered a reward of $1,000 for the delivery of Cullen and the two other Northeast Texas outlaws I mentioned previously, Baker, Staff, and Lee. Obviously, Baker would only last another four months and some change. Baker, Staff was next, meeting his end three months later in April of 69 when he rode into the town of Alvarado, Texas, looking to cause trouble. The townspeople rose up and blasted the man straight to hell. Bob Lee quickly followed, May of 69. He was balls deep in the Lee-Peacock feud and the only one of the three to die at the hands of the U.S. military. I definitely want to cover this Lee-Peacock feud more in uh, the future. There's still lots more to be said about both Lee and Bickerstaff. Just not today. Okay, well, I guess that's about all I've got on Colin Montgomery Baker. What do you think? Did I get it right, or am I just falling victim to revisionist history? I'll tell you this much, the older I get, the less and less patience I have for the so-called lost cause doctrine. As a Texan born and raised, as someone whose direct ancestors fought for the Confederate States of America, why sugarcoat it? Things weren't great. You know, the South lost the war, and bad things did happen. That doesn't mean that the people living in the South are bad. That doesn't mean that your great-great-great-grandma was a mean old lady. It simply means that bad things happened and it's okay to acknowledge the bad right along with the good. Alright, I'm running out of time, so I'm going to keep this week's outro quick. Huge thanks to all of you who continue to support the Wild West extravaganza via Patreon and buy me a coffee. Thanks to all of you who have reached out via email. If I haven't gotten back to you yet, be patient and I will. And thank you to those of you who just listen. I never give y'all thanks. I know there's quite a few of you who don't send emails, who who don't reach out or anything like that, and that's fine. I'm just grateful that you ain't tired of hearing me talk just yet. And please keep spreading the word, sharing the Wild West extravaganza with others. And do me one favor, please. If you've got an iPhone or if someone in your family has an iPhone, please follow the Wild West extravaganza on Apple Podcasts. It is free and it would be a huge help. While you're doing so, if you decide to leave me a review, well, that won't hurt my feelings none either. David Allen, if you're listening, I hope you get to feeling better soon and you have a speedy recovery. I will keep you in my prayers, sir. All right, next episode, we're coming in hot with a big name that I think you'll be very interested in hearing about. We're about to kick this experiment in podcasting into overdrive, and there's lots of exciting stuff in the works, so please stay tuned. 
Till then, try not to get hit over the head with a damn tomahawk. And try not to marry your 16-year-old sister-in-law. Adios. Who's the naughty girl? Who's the naughty girl?